Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your weekend sports cars show featuring, well, me, but most of all, Graham Goodwin. He's the voice that we love and appreciate. Got to say big thank you, Graham, as always, to our listeners who fuel our show with mostly awesome questions, a couple of very long rants, little <laughs> Unabomber manifesto-ish at times, but for the most <laughs> part, you know, we, we don't have the FBI looking in that often. You know, they come knocking every now and then after an episode, but not too often. Also want to say big thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Toronto Motorsports.com. What are we doing first? Let's dive right in. Merciless, yeah. right into Q&A. You're the man who tells us which of the categories we start with and when. What are we doing? Well, we've got a couple of big, fat, juicy ones in Wekaslam's uh, Elms Akko, but let's start with IMSA this week. What? Let's have a bit of a canter through that one. And the first one uh, comes out, and this is from Cody at uh, Cody DW 12 uh, who says, with Mossport now often a sort of doubleheader at Watkins Glen with a race only five days after the sale in six hours, will there be extra strain on the teams for this, or is it similar enough to what we saw with Daytona scheduling for it not to be a factor? I... This was announced just yesterday, wasn't it, as we record this? Yes, had a inkling this was going to happen, not just the cancellation of IMSA's trip north, Cross the border to Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, aka Mo Sport. Knew that was the ninety-nine percent chance likelihood thing that was going to play out. Had heard they were looking at. Well, what do we do if we can't go to Canada? Where could we go? The week prior to the scheduled race at CTMP, six hours of racing at Watkins Glen, the traditional late. June Salem six hour event in upstate New York. That being already not too far from where they would have gone across the border to Mo Sport, decided to stay. And so I'd heard that's what they were thinking of doing, staying over consecutive weekends. It's actually, I believe, a Friday race uh, or Friday, Saturday. Correct, yeah. I'll, I'll take a look. Uh, I apologize. Friday. Okay. Friday. It's a Friday race. So it's something like five days after the uh, six hour event. What I'd heard, Graham, and this is the thing that had me kind of sort of excited just because I like things that are different and unique challenges, I'd heard the goal was, well, if we're going to stay and do back-to-back races at Watkins Glen, why don't we try the short course instead of the long course with the heel of the boot and the toe of the boot and the uh, webbing of the boot and all the other things, the full 3.4-mile course that we'll see the six hours done on. Maybe we'll go to the shorter course used by NASCAR just to change things up. And that didn't happen. So indeed, they're doing back-to-back races on the same configuration. I'm less excited about that. What I am excited about, though, which is a cool newish thing for this event is, well, it's a new event, but for going to Watkins Glen with IMSA, and that is, it's late start, 6 p.m. start, two hours and 40 minutes worth of racing. It will move into uh, evening. It'll move into dark, and we will finish the race in darkness. So I like that aspect about it. That's the main difference from the uh, six-hour race the weekend prior. 
to the question here from Cody. This is a blessing. This is an absolute blessing. Instead of having to pack everything up and then go run somewhere else to race five days later after a endurance-ish race, six hours isn't a short race, but it's not exactly grueling on equipment and crew members. Even so, this should be zero issues. If anything, this should be a really, really welcome thing, Cody, where we're going to do six hours of racing, and then we're going to come back the next day, get some rest, come back the next day, start breaking the cars down, service them, get everything ready. In theory, barring some sort of big crash by a team that's going to have them scrambling and trying to get parts from here and there and having to thrash to get ready for the second race, if everything goes well for the majority of teams, there should absolutely be a day off, uh, maybe even a day and a half off of just enjoying beautiful upstate New York. So that's not something that would normally happen if you had race on one weekend, race somewhere else the following weekend with car prep and travel in mind. The lack of travel, that's actually the big gift here. Yeah, it's uh, from what I recall of the announcement, all three races, because Michelin Pilot Challenge and the IMSA Prototype Challenge on the same bill, because it's an SCCA weekend, I think I'm right, this has been bolted on, all three races on Friday, which means practicing qualifying presumably on the Thursday, um, but the thing you've, you, I have to say, I am crushingly disappointed with you that you've we've you've uh, uh, obviously eyeballed the fact that the COVID-19 the travel restrictions are a major part of it it's risk reduction as well of course Remsa not something we've had to actually say uh, talk about for quite some time on the week in sports cars but a massive reduction in the risk of bear attack for the uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship teams. And that's been something I know that's been on their minds through COVID-19, having to go back to Canada and the imminent potential for bear attack now removed by staying in Watkins Glen. Yet again, you've revealed how much of an ass you are, Graham, because you did (laughs) not read the addendum. You did not read the attachment that came with the announcement that said, due to the fact that they will be unable to compete in Canada this year, They're actually importing 20 bears. Yes, they're releasing 20 black bears around the outskirts of the Watkins Glen circuit. Not telling you when, not saying exactly where. Definitely something drivers, this is a a bit of motivation for sure to drive clean. You don't want to get into a crash with somebody, be stranded trackside. Next thing you know, before the emergency crews arrive, you might get dragged off by a black bear. So this is yet another reason to drive clean and be good citizens. They think of everything, Imsa, don't they? Fantastic. What a what a what a rumor. Rumor haven't confirmed. I know you haven't been chasing it because you're not smart enough, but I have. (laughs) Possibility parachuting bears into the race. Yes, and not outside the circuit. Possibly onto the racing circuit. So watch for the possibility of black bears descending onto the racing circuit. I mean, I, this is, sounds like the best thing ever. And since it takes place July 2nd, it's almost 4th of July. This is a very, very American way. Forget fireworks. Any lame ass can do fireworks to celebrate America's independence. 
parachuting bears into the middle of a motor race two days before the 4th of July, that is high ambition. That's, that's, that's entertainment right there. Okay. Uh, moving on to that, I think we probably should. Should we should uh, shut down the Adam- show? It's not going to get any better slash worse. <laughs> Adam Heydrich. And that's not a name I can recall having uh, run out before, but uh, welcome, Adam, if that's the case. Hi, guys. For LMDH, will EMSA and the WC step in when the design isn't modified enough from its LMP2 base, which series get uh, will get final approval? Despite the limited areas open to modification, uh, Adam says he's hoping for more Mazda-like designs rather than Acura's Orica with a boomerang hashtag Frank knows. Um, the intention, I think, is that there's significantly more styling opportunity. Whether or not that's mandated, I genuinely don't know. I would refer back to the, I think, somewhat infamous exchange that took place between IMSA's, the, the OG of IMSA, Mark Raffoff, and mm-hmm. the Extreme Speed Motorsports slash Nissan DPI program in its formative stages. Mark being, what, 50, almost 50-year employee now of IMSA. He's a couple years away from 50 years. Technical director of this, that, and the other. At this stage, in this era, basically the father of the Daytona prototype concept. We'll we'll try not to blame him for that. Uh, Mark's been there for everything. Uh, on the technical side, regulatory side, also pretty good artist. And having seen what ESM slash Nissan had proposed with their Lige-based DPI originally, he said no. This is, you guys, in his opinion, making almost zero attempt to modify the look of the car compared to the base Lige LMP2. So, uh, and he's told the story more than once we've recounted on the show. It's been a little while though, but for those who don't know, Mark said, well, I went to Nissan.com or whatever their regular automotive website happened to be, took a look at some of their models, got an idea of some of the hashtag front nose stylings and, and treatments and whatnot. And then I just started scribbling on the proverbial napkin and came up with what I thought was something that took this base Nissan Liger to a place that uh, we could say that's a DPI, not an LMP2. Would I say that Nissan, in its finished form that we saw run for a couple of years, Graham, was just so outstanding in its visual differentiation from its LMP2 form? I'd say they did a pretty good job, right? Uh, It definitely had GTR type language to it. But uh, (laughs) if you squinted and punched yourself in the head, you could definitely see that. Uh, Kidding aside, direct answer is Mark Raffoff is still at IMSA. (laughs) Mark Raffoff (laughs) is still directly involved in everything technical and regulatory and you name it. And with the added areas or the added ability to create more differentiation from model to model and uh, LMDH, though we still don't know exactly how it would manifest, but we just, we've been told it, it exists. I can guarantee you Mark will absolutely be the cop. He'll be the sheriff there 
saying yep or nope and you just as you don't want to get reprimanded by mom or dad you really don't want mark to get out the pens and pencils and napkins and start drawing because that tells you you certainly have not done enough so uh trust in mark he will absolutely make sure that things look differenter and differenter I hope so, because certainly one of the things we're certainly seeing with the hypercars even this year from, uh, how can we put this, the peripheral fan base uh, are that they're too prototype-like. That's not what people were expecting about hypercar, and I'm sure that would be the same for uh, the LMDH bits. And I have news about LMDH, by the way, and it's news of a stunning level. Uh, and I know there's going to be an opportunity in a couple of questions' time to bring this in. Next one up, Ian Keyworth says, third time of asking, for the stat geeks, are ALMS events, American Le Mans series events, counted towards the historic IMSA championship records for most wins, drivers' titles, etc., or are they treated as an entirely different championship? I've only seen them treated, Ian, as part of uh, the greater IMSA hemisphere. I mean, if we want to be, uh, if we really wanted to parse things, we could say that the modern IMSA is not truly the same as the original IMSA. I know that it's closer than uh, the American Le Mans series was, but these are all things that, from a lineage standpoint or provenance or whatever the correct term might be, they are treated and considered as uh, one and the same. So, yes, I have seen... IMSA talking about records and whatnot, and it could be listing Lucas Luer's uh, amazing uh, win record in the ALMS. Uh, I've seen things going back to the 70s and 80s with Hurley Haywood or Al Holbert. So as I have seen things, yes, modern-day IMSA owned by NASCAR, keeping in mind that the original IMSA was not owned by NASCAR. Uh, the France family was the financial stake beneath it, um, co-owned with John and Peggy Bishop, and it was truly an independent organization despite having its you know NASCAR familial ties. But yes, whether it's the original IMSA, whether it is what it morphed into, with the American Le Mans series being sanctioned at, under or by IMSA. Um, it was American Le Mans series, or what was it? Uh, IMSA doing business as the American Le Mans series. Um, then what we have had is the reconstituted IMSA when the ALMS and Grand Am, quote, merged, a.k.a. Uh, NASCAR done, took the ALMS off of Don's hands and uh, brought that together here. They've only, as I've seen it, uh, treated it all as one beautiful, long, 50-plus-year history. Uh, yeah, which is, which is as it should be, really. And the, just the little weird modifier here, uh, you see mention of Grand Am achievements, if and where it's necessary, usually more on a event-based thing, mostly talking about the Rolex 24 at Daytona. So each year we'll see that you know Wayne Taylor Racing has won the event X amount of times, you'll see mention of the success in Grand Am as part of that and those achievements. 
or if there's some sort of reason to tally uh, drivers' championships or teams' championships and they have Grand Am history, you'll see that mentioned. To the greater point, though, Graham, maybe it's just me, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just trying to think back to uh, common mentions. Don't hear Grand Am rolled in nearly as much when it comes time to look back and account for uh, historical achievements. So weird and interesting knowing that Grand Am is actually the thing that was NASCAR's to begin with, and they've taken on the whole IMSA side and rolled that into what was their original product competing against the LMS. So (sighs) mommy and daddy uh, divorced, came back together, uh, something along those lines. Let's move on. Uh, Mike Banning, uh, at Real Mike Banning on Twitter, says with LMDH and IndyCar moving to hybrid power plants in 2023, will HPD be using the same engine for both their Acura and IndyCar programs? Hey, Mike, great question. Answer, no. Uh, The IndyCar engine, smaller, very, very different, even though they're both V6s and both twin turbos. I have heard nothing about HPD Acura slash Honda trying to use their 2.4 liter twin turbo V6 uh, motor that'll debut in 2023 in IndyCar within their LMDH plans. Easy answer to this is with endurance racing being the key part of the LMDH differentiation here. And I'm using the word differentiation a lot today, I think. Uh, we have something that proving the ability of road cars using production-ish based uh, 3.5 liter, I believe right now, uh, twin turbo V6 in uh, their DPI uh, would just say that for what they need the motors to deliver, continuing down the road of production-based-ish uh, power plants and that fairly significant uh, capacity in three and a half liters or so. I would expect that to be more or less the same when we get to LMDH. Could there be a a small difference? Yes, but very big change in approach here, Mike, with the IndyCar engine not only being very small by comparison, not something that is meant to go 12, shoot, six hours straight. 12 hours straight, 24 hours straight. Uh, These are motors that do run for quite a while. And the timing between rebuilds is in the thousands of miles. But they're just truly not designed to be hammered at 12,000 RPM maximum for super long endurance racing durations. Last little bit here. Could they try and modify it? Do the rules allow them to? Yes. And LMDH, they could absolutely use it if they want. What you'll hear from manufacturers, though, is, boy, that's going to end up costing us a lot of money to develop it, to find reliability, and then use that in endurance racing, especially when some an entity like HPD already has a well-proven championship-winning, uh, Rolex 24-winning, you-name-it-winning uh, production-based motor that they can bolt in and keep using. I could see no reason for them to try and uh, wedge their IndyCar motor in there knowing, boy, that's going to cost a lot, and it's probably not going to endure as much as they would like, especially in the first year or two. 
Um, Lance Snyder's next up. This is a question I'm going to answer, MP, and the reason for it is this is genuinely real news uh, for the first time, I believe, um, to the Weekend Sports Car's audience, because I've not written this yet for Delhi Sports Car. It's kind of one of those odd things that sort of matters, but sort of not big enough to write something around. Uh, Lance says, with what could be another golden era of prototype racing upon us, would this be the first golden era with a class designation where one of the letters has not been defined? That refers, of course, to LMDH, Le Mans Daytona H, famously adopted by the Weekend Sports Cars audience as Le Mans Daytona Husky. I'm afraid Oscar's been displaced because I can tell you exactly what it now stands for. And the reason I can tell you this is because this came in correspondence um, with a contact of mine and none other than Pierre Fion of the ACO, the president of the ACO. Um, this has been a point of debate between IMSA and the ACO about what the H stands for. I think uh, it would seem that IMSA wanted the H to be hybrid, to recognise that aspect of the powertrain. Uh, ACO wanted it to be hypercar in recognition that these cars were slotted to the hypercar class. It is hybrid. That's what it is. It's Le Mans Daytona hybrid. And my understanding is from this point forward, it will be referred to as that. So uh, your point well made, but now superseded by uh, events that have clearly happened behind closed doors. And for that, uh, all of us, with the exception of the Husky, who is sulking now, um, can be very happy. Let's move on. Um, I don't know, if, uh, MP, have you had an opportunity to catch up with the latest bizarreness from our friends and colleagues at Dinner with Racers. No. I encourage everybody to look at it. Um, it's a bit of a, a setup. Sean Heckman, uh, the latest of his, his um, videos, which is, uh, I use this word accurately, extraordinary. Uh, uh, Ryan Comerford says, like Sean Heckman in the latest Dinner with Racers video, but was perplexed about the D3 Plus Transformers announcement, which forms a key part of that video. Uh, coverage by the series, official channels, and subsequent total disappearance. Now, we've been over this before as to the reasons for that on the Weekend Sports Cars, but what Ryan is asking here, are there any sort of other sorts of past announcements were made, seemed a bit odd, never happened, that stick out for either of you? We've, we've genuinely not got enough time, have we? There's so many of them. Uh, but you want to pick one? I'll pick one. Uh, you you take one here, please. Shaw, and I mean that S H A W Corey Shaw, um, the Shaw S C T uh, L M P program from some years back that was uh, announced in rather bizarre fashion at an A L M S race as being uh, the answer to all the prayers that the L M S had at that time for pretty poor uh, car counts in L M P. All sorts of things mentioned uh, around promises for that program and suffice it to say, not a single car actually emerged from it. You want to see uh, what I'm talking about there? Have a quick look at Daily Sports Car and look at sports cars that never raced. Uh, have a read of one of those articles. It's in our archive. Just pop that into the search engine and you'll see what I'm talking about. But there's been so many where the ability to translate creativity uh, into a commercial proposition has fallen tragically short, and I'm sure that will continue to be the case. I um, think uh, I th if it's still available, I don't recall if it's on uh, Molson Mike's 
website still. I believe there was something there about it, but this would be, you know, a little bit older timey internet search. And if those websites are still alive, might take a look, do a Googs search for Porsche RS Spider and the name Sola Roli, S-O-L-A-R-O-L-I. There was meant to be a independent Porsche RS Spider LMP2 program in the good old America Le Mans series that went very sideways, and it was a very contentious thing. So that was announced as a program, the uh, Solaroli Racing Porsche RS Spider. That would have been a would have been a big deal, because to yep. my recollection. I don't know if uh, Dyson Racing had gotten their hands on their privateer RS Spiders at that point. I feel like, and again, could be totally wrong, but timing-wise, yep. I think Solaroli might was meant to be the first, possibly, at least over here. Did not happen. A uh, little bit of, uh, I don't know, drama behind that. But, yeah, that was a big, whoa, this is a big deal, and then it didn't happen, and there wasn't a lot of folks wanting to talk about it, and the feeling was something pretty big went down here. What was it exactly? And I, I just seem to recall there being vaguely uh, decent accounts of it, at least one or two places. The reason that I will never forget the Solar Rolly team is because each time I see my pal Kevin Jeanette, father of Gunnar Jeanette, who's going to racing shop prepares and runs many Porsche everythings, whether it's 917s, 956, 962, but also many RS Spiders. Kevin still has the uh, beautifully fabricated Solaroli racing pads that get placed on the top of the side pods for those looking to get into the cockpit open cockpit cars, work in the cockpit, uh, rather than just kneel directly on top of the side pods, potentially, who knows, crack something or, or scuff something up. He still has the original, as unused in their original intent, solar rolly racing, um, little uh, kneel, kneeling pads and whatnot uh, that he wheels out and gets used with uh, at least one of the are spiders he takes care of in vintage racing. So whenever I pop by their trailer, I just always make a point to see if they're still there. And yep, uh, that's the one standing legacy of a program that never happened. So the answer, by the way, is it came after the um, Dyson cars. Did but the, he did. He did have one spider and the other part of this one you recall a gtlm car as well so it originally is intended to be two lmp2 porsche rs spiders and a porsche uh rsr as well uh with that organization and they had one of the um spiders and one uh, and, and the gt car were indeed delivered before it all went horribly terminally wrong uh but uh, yeah good stuff there uh let's move on um jonathan green and also jj gertler uh bring in another significant um u.s story from the week 
On a scale of 1 to 10, says Jonathan, what's the likelihood of prototypes returning to Lime Rock? Also, he says it's sad to see Skip Barber selling the track, but feels good about him passing the torch to people who truly care about racing. JJ says, any comments on Skip Barber selling Lime Rock? Might be too early to tell whether the new ownership group has big plans. But is, it, is, is it encouraging for the track's future to see new money in the sport, or are they whistling against the wind? My reaction to it was nothing but a positive I uh, would say that it feels like the track had been taken about a, as far as it was going to go under the previous ownership. Skip, obviously, you know, central in the existence of Lime Rock. I know that he's going to be retained in a, an advisory role. Doubt we're going to get prototypes there. Uh, yeah, just seems like IMS has settled into a bit of a groove with the GT only event, but I like where it's going for sure. Um, We'll have to see if it becomes more than what it is. Uh, that's maybe the, the big goal of, hey, what else can you attract to come here? What things can you do to restore Lime Rock to be more of a national presence instead of falling back to be more of a regional thing? So you know, these are the same questions that both my home tracks are asking. Laguna Seca. Uh, a.k.a. WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca, and Sonoma Raceway. I mean, these are two tracks that were super high in the National Register for a long time. Major, major events, uh, multiple major events each year, and not so much right now. So, uh, similar place. Would would just throw this in quickly, Graham. I must admit, mild surprise, that at least looking through the questions that came in, on imps and whatnot uh i spent a couple weeks trying to put together a pretty decent update on the future of lmdh and manufacturers and such and not a single person seemed to ask anything about it or read it or give a crap so maybe that's just the market (laughs) speaking saying yeah pruitt uh there's nothing there and it was hot garbage but I really figured it was going to be the opening thing that we spoke about, and indeed, looking through all the questions, well, let's talk about it. Not a let's, single let's person talk. gives a shit. So there you I, go. I do. I, I do. I love you. Aww. I love you dearly. So, but <laughs> but just just to kind of push the buttons here on the key points. There, there were a couple of names mentioned in the. In fact, there were more than a couple of names mentioned. Just to, just give us a quick run through, and, and I guess the. There's there's two very interesting parts of this this emerging story, MP, that you were spot on with. One is the names that are going to be attached, we believe, to LMDH projects and indeed the potential for some that we thought might be not to be. But also, and what certainly I'm beginning to dig into on this side of the pond, is the timing of some of those projects. Because at this point, we've been pretty laser focused on LMDH cars starting in 2023. But increasingly, it seems to me, that there's a number of projects emerging that are targeting the following year, 2024. Definitely one of the main things that stand out. Uh, we would hope everyone's going to jump in at the same time. It's not going to happen. I know that someone uh, saw someone, it wasn't for the show, but someone did fire something back on uh, Twitter saying that, well, if LMDH is only in WEC and IMSA, I can't possibly see how all of the supposed uh, LMDH brands you're mentioning could possibly 
be there because there's just not enough series for them to run. Basically, in their mind, just WEC and IMSA, well, uh, you must be off on all the brands that you've mentioned because it's just not big enough of a, a playground. Okay, uh, what we know playground-wise is we have three manufacturers named right now that are going to be here in 2023. Debut of LMDH, Audi, Acura, Porsche. Yep. Pretty confident we're going to have the fourth being announced here imminently. That would be for 2023 from what I understand. So that would be four brands for the debut season. Of the couple that we, uh, you and I have discussed many times uh, that were in print as well here about timing and interest and whatnot, have only heard about Lamborghini, that being one of the uh, family members under the Volkswagen group alongside Audi and Porsche, have only heard of Lamborghini being 2024-ish and being angled towards true customer sales primarily know that both Audi and Porsche have received numerous inquiries on, hey, we'd like to be a customer team, we'd like to buy some, run them independently, etc. I expect that to happen for both brands to some degree, Graham. I think you do as well. But I don't yep. know if I'd present either one as, oh, well, we're going to have four combined factory cars, two WAC, two IMSA, and then... 15 customer cars out there to support. I don't think we're talking about that kind of aggressive sales and support plan. Same with, uh, again, Audi and Porsche there. But from what I've heard, and I believe you've heard similar things, uh, Lamborghini could indeed be the one that's positioned as we're going to be the ones taking the orders. And could there be a factory entry? Again, I'm not saying that there wouldn't, but that, I've not heard as being the primary focus. And then the, the fourth member of the Volkswagen group, we've both heard uh, of being interested, seriously interested in doing LMDH. That would also be for 2024. That would be Bentley. So some others question mark, right? In terms yep. of timing, BMW know for a fact they're searching and searching hard uh, for potential constructor partner etc etc um yeah uh would that be a 2023 or 2024 i don't know uh little tickles and whatnot that i've heard have been more 23 we'll have to see though mclaren i know have heard and as i wrote Mm -hmm. they've been hot and cold it seems like depending upon the month there's a different answer on whether they may or may not take part I would say that that might lead me to believe that if they're going to be in, it'd be more 2024 than 2023. So I don't know if we're talking about six, seven, whatever the number ends up being LMDH is on the ground race one Rolex 24, 2023. But I do know that it sure sounds like if we're talking one year later in 24, uh, the number could be fairly significant. Uh, what do you yeah. want to throw in on this, my friend? I'll, I'll check a couple of things in on. The Bentley side of things is an interesting part of the the puzzle. And certainly the the news that Lamborghini is uh, pretty red hot on this 
is very good news for Bentley in terms of the economies of scale that apply across the VAG group. It's a very complex commercial situation. Uh, but there's one very good reason why Bentley would want to be in in 2024. Remember, we've been talking a lot about the centenary of the race at Le Mans in 2023. The centenary of Bentley's first win at the race is the following year, 2024. So if it's going to happen, 2024 is when they want it to happen. Um, so at that point, you know, we are then looking at a very significant number of um, significant OEMs and boutique OEM brands, Halo brands within some of those groups as well. And that's before you even touch on uh, General Motors and Ford MP. Yeah, so would expect GM to be in. All signs point to GM continuing. Question mark as to whether it would just be a straight continuation with Cadillac. Same brand. We're just moving right into the next formula as Acura is planning to do. Or would they look at a different brand to badge the uh, LMDH? Heard rumor for a while, we believe a Corvette sub brand is meant to come to life here sometime soon. Something that might have electrification within that vehicle. Would that be a uh, something in alignment where it might make sense to go under that brand or whatever? Again, I don't know what it would be called. Would it just be a Corvette, but a an E-vet or an I-vet or I don't know. We'll have to see. But I, I don't have any real question as to whether GM will be back. Just don't know how they would decide to do it. Sticking with what we got, or we're going to try a little change up in branding that might be a little more harmonious with the hybridization that's coming. Ford would say has gone for me. So hashtag me personally it's gone for me from a huh i wonder when that announcement's going to come to hmm i wonder if that announcement's going to come of all the major brands that i wrote about in the story in racer.com graham ford's the only one that i've gone from being high expectation to significantly lower expectation so yeah put them into the same hot cold thing like a, a McLaren Hyundai as well. Um, yeah. But I would say Ford though is really the only one that jumps out where having a hard time getting a read if they really are wanting to go forward and do something. And that's just based on what you hear in the background. Who are they talking to? What are they, you know, these aren't things in print where CFO, CMO, whatever person X from Ford says on the record, well, we want to do it, but now we're not sure. It's just having to look at all the various points of uh, information we pick up on background, add things up, at least at the moment, the dream of a uh, Ford versus GM versus the world type thing again, uh, having that in LMDH, my, uh, my spidey sense is not tingling like it once was. 
I tend to agree with you. And um, lest we think, and by the way, that uh, if you haven't read the story on race.com, you genuinely should, if you're interested in where things are, absolutely nails a number of the talking points we've been discussing on the week in sports cars for a number of weeks. With my apologies, I've not yet been able to follow up with yet further names that we're chasing down to do with the new era across LMDH, LMH, hydrogen, etc. Bear with me uh, for days into a few weeks but i'm chasing down multiple additional potential oems uh that might well be involved in that picture uh that's not dead yet uh and that by necessity will focus on programs that are emerging specifically more on my side of the pond uh, than yours mp in addition to what we already know from toyota from peugeot uh, from ferrari etc as well as obviously audi uh, porsche et al so there's a lot going on but it's not a simple time to get these things over the line and i suspect that might very well be just exactly the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune seems to have uh, barraged the Ford boardroom. And I su- suggest to you, MP, they're probably suffering a bit of a crisis of confidence about direction right now. And I don't think they're going to be alone in that. We, we are living through extraordinary times. And we were living through extraordinary times even before COVID-19. COVID-19 has just added further layers of complexity and uncertainty about the industry. Uh, I think for the moment, that's yes. us done with IMSA. Do you want yes. to move on and we'll do Weck, Aslam's, Elms and Aco? Yes. Bearing in mind, we're about to head into the excitement that is the start of the European season. Yes, on all fronts. And why don't we start off with Oh, some excitement of the not really wanted and desired kind. Um, we've we opened with, I don't know, five, six questions, something along those lines, maybe even more. Uh, Esme Hockey, Iron Links, a little bit of news came out yesterday, Graham. Yep. One of our favorite topics, the thing actually that drew the two of us to sports car racing, driver ratings. Really not. A, I, I don't know. The only thing I do it for. The only yeah. thing I do it for. I uh, I'm unaware of there being cars. Uh, really, I only <laughs> know about drivers and driver ratings. That's the only thing I pay attention to. Uh, why don't we just go with Damien Peachman, who cracks open the topic for you uh, to explain to those who don't know about this dumbness. Damien says, "What's going on with Iron Dames, their ELMS team?" Uh, and this is all pointing back to young Esme Hockey. Right. Well, let's start from the the, uh, the top. So just a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, what was actually quite a surprise reshuffle of the Iron Dames effort. So Iron Dames, if you're not aware, is a sub-brand of the Iron Lynx team uh, run by Giacomo Pacini and his brother and their backers, uh, serviced by AF Corsa for the last couple of years, uh, running multiple uh, Ferrari GT3s and GTEs across a whole range of platforms. Um and also or some single-seater uh, efforts, by the way, in Italy with F4. But uh, in particular, one of their things is they have the Iron Dames. It's the all-female GTE efforts and GT3 efforts in Michelin Le Mans Cup, in ELMS, and this year also in the WEC in GTE Am. Um, reshuffle of the of the driver uh, 
lineups for all three championships came a couple of weeks ago. And one of the principal parts of that was young 23-year-old Brit uh, Esme Hawkey uh, coming into uh, race in the ELMS. It also involved Cat Leg, by the way, moving up to the WEC squad from the ELMS. And then yesterday evening, through the bizarre medium uh, of Instagram, we get uh, a fairly blunt statement issued by uh, the Iron Links team that says, media statement, further to Ms. Esme Hawkey's bronze FI categorization, uh, Iron Links announced the Iron Dames lineup for the 2021 European Le Mans series as per our statement on 31st of March. Contrary to the information the team was originally given in January, Iron Links has discovered that Esme Hawkey's manager obtained her bronze categorization, providing incorrect information to the FIA through the mandatory application form. As a result of this eventual mistake, Iron Links and Iron Dames have decided to revoke Ms. Esme Hawkey's engagement with the team. Consequently, she will not race for Iron Links during the 2021 season. Uh, one or two of the questions are answered, by the way, uh, that we've got uh, in the list by the final sentence which says Iron Links is incredibly disappointed by this development remains fully committed to maintain a full female lineup in the 2021 European Le Mans series right where do we start with this so one of two things has happened because the statement is clear that it was incorrect information from the manager of the driver we'll come to who that is in a moment um, so one of two things has happened either someone has made a mistake and that mistake has been compounded by the fact that mistake has not been noticed by the FIA, not been noticed by the manager, not been noticed by Esme Hawking, not been noticed by the team. And for that matter, and I'll put my hand up, not been noticed by me either. Um, or someone has attempted to game this system uh, to a degree where uh, it simply didn't make sense. The reality is there is no way that Esme Hawkey should ever have been a bronze-ranked driver. The default position of the FI driver ranking system is that a driver with experience, which she most certainly does have, um, Formula W uh, and uh, Porsche Carrera Cup, amongst other things, um, and if you're under 30, the default setting is you are a silver-ranked driver. Esme Hawkey is 23 years old. Um, I spoke to... Esme's management company this morning. They were extremely polite, uh, but clearly had got a pre-prepared statement, as you'd expect. Um, and their uh, response was that no party involved were at liberty to discuss the matter whilst the process was ongoing. Quite what that process is, the reality is Esme will not be racing in the LMS for Iron Links. And one would presume that at best they will reclassify her as a silver, um, whether or not there's deemed to be any kind of uh, edge towards the deliberate rather than the accidental, we have no clue at the moment. I'll say this much. So Esme Hawkey's manager or management company is MB Partners, the MB being Mark Blondell. I have zero doubt whatsoever that a driver and a professional in motorsport with the history of Mark Blundell would have no part in attempting to mislead that process to the degree that would have been involved here. My default position, MP, is a mistake has been made here and that a mistake has been made and that the, the secondary follow-up mistake to that is having got an answer to that application that they surely were not expecting that nobody went and checked. So, 
I think we've got a combination here of error on one, two or three parts um, and a compounded error in not uh, no checking having been done there. Aside from that, I mean, uh, putting aside the debate about driver rankings, about which I'm happy to expand on in a moment, um, I've read a lot of Twitter commentary about how unfair it is to Esme Hawkey. It's not unfair to Esme Hawkey. She got the wrong driver ranking and profited in terms of an offer from a team as a result of having an incorrect driver ranking. Whether or not it was deliberate or whether or not it was accidental, the reality was she was not qualified for that ranking. End of story. Okay. Um, And happily, here's something we can put a nail in here. It's got nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman at all. The same rules apply. It's absolutely nothing to do with that. It's not a judgment that's been made based on her gender. It's a judgment that's been made based on a series of factual statements that are made in the regulations, which apply to literally everybody that applies for that classification. The second part of it is this. Does this system need to be sorted? It absolutely 100% does. No, it's perfect. (laughs) Uh, How dare you suggest otherwise? So silver needs sorting. Silver needs to be sorted, needs to be sorted rapidly. Uh, platinum is a joke. Platinum just should not exist anymore. We've discussed this, I know, in the previous shows to do with Joey Hand, amongst others, MP, where it should never be the case that a lack of available opportunity in factory level racing stops the best drivers we've got in the sport from being employed. That's the reality, okay? It means that the the number of places they can go and race with a platinum grading is reduced simply because the factories aren't racing anymore at the moment. That will improve. That will come back. I've no doubt at all about that. Uh, But for right now, um, the platinum grading makes absolutely no sense and I think should be suspended pending a review. Um, And yes, I agree with that. There was a long list of questions uh, here from uh, Andrew Baxter, Lance Snyder, uh, Jacob Bame, James James Counter. Yeah, the number. I mean, one one that stands out that is merging a couple of those questions together, maybe Hmm. to close on this topic, Graham, Esme's future. Uh, She, to our knowledge, did not fill out the form herself, at least as it was presented to us. Didn't yep. sound like she sat home, filled out the form, either made a mistake or fudged it intentionally, and yet she uh, is dealing with the repercussions of this. Any thoughts on how the FIA might treat her going forward? Uh, how might this impact her career, et cetera, et cetera? If she's, if she's um, a completely innocent party in this, uh, if the information available to the management group is correct, and that's just been mistakenly kind of transferred to a form incorrectly, I see no reason other than the fact she's clearly lost her LMS drive. But again, let's nail this in a drive that had she got the, the correct ranking, she would not have got in the first place. Okay. So let's, let's put that one there. Um, other than that, I don't see any reason why there should be any sanction against the individual. I genuinely don't. Um, what do I think has possibly happened here? I'd be quite surprised if someone hasn't been fired today, to be honest with you. Um, if this is, uh, something that's affected a client to that degree, to be blunt, whether or not it was accidental or deliberate, my guess is the, 
career result is probably going to be the same. And, you know, whilst that's sad, it's completely understandable. Um, the reality in terms of Esme going forward, I have no clue. I, I, I've, I think, met Esme very briefly once and not really to talk to it any great. I think a nodding hello was about it. And I've got a recollection that might have been, um, it could have been a 24-H series race, but uh, I'll have to go back and check that. But the, I think the realities here are it's very late to be picking up a full season um, gig at the moment. And it's only got later since she got already what was a late change two weeks ago. So I would expect it's going to be a difficult road back for Esme Hawkey into the ELMS paddock at the very, very least. As for the other parts, I know a lot of these questions, MP, they've made it very clear they intend to uh, appoint another uh, female driver to complete the Iron Dames lineup. You know, the F-spots, maybes, mites uh, right out there. I will be on site for the LMS uh, pre-season tests on Sunday evening, Monday. We're on track for two days. Iron Links will be there. We will ask them the question. And my guess is we might well be meeting the replacement for Esme Hawkey. Um, you know, I've had uh, a number of approaches for a number of people being asked to be put in touch with uh, the Iron Links team. And, you know, I, I think they're going to be pretty busy with people looking for that opportunity. The issue, of course, is the availability of the two ingredients that need to come together uh, for that to happen. One is the money and two is the available level of talent. Well, I do appreciate you putting me in contact with them nonetheless. So uh, if you see Marsha Pruitt on an entry list, you'll know that uh, my little scheme has paid off. One other thing that stood out here uh, from sent in from uh, Mr. Hodges, uh, do you think based on what has been discovered with this related to Esme could have the FIA doing a bit of a overall paperwork check and seeing if maybe any other drivers might have uh, received whatever ranking uh, that should possibly be adjusted. Curious if you think there might be a little bit of a, Oh, well, one of you got something past us, so maybe we need to do a full accounting. What do you think? Are they that well, conspiratorially minded? Well, I mean, whether a mistake or deliberate. Look, have I had conversations in the last 24 hours or so with uh, other people involved in the industry saying, well, of course, people have tried to game the system. We know people have tried to game the system, but it tends to be errors of omission rather than commission. Um, here's the thing. It is a pretty straightforward system that initially at least relies on the honesty of those applying to it. But the impetus is for the FIA to check. There are going to be things in the regulation that talk about the consequences if you try to mislead. No doubt about that. But this is a process which the driver being graded pays for. Okay, You pay a fee. They issue you a grade against the, the record that you've got and that you present. So absolutely every single driver could be checked by um, the, uh, the, com the commission that actually uh, issues the driver gradings. Do I think this is going to lead to a full investigation? To be blunt, MP, it very much depends on the actual circumstances because at the moment we're all guessing. We've had literally one party – say one thing 
we've got the other party, that being the management company, effectively refusing to comment. Uh, there is zero doubt in my mind that if anybody speaks directly to Esme Hawkey, they're going to get exactly, and I mean exactly the same statement I got from her management group while they sort out this cataclysmic mess. Um, but my guess is what we've got at the moment is a pretty large collection of very unhappy people. Um, and that won't be sorted unless and until we've got the uh, little vinyls with three different uh, names of female drivers on the roof line of the number 83 uh, Ferrari uh, on track at the Circuit de Catalunya next week. Where are we going next, my friend? We have LMP2 as a topic oh, gosh, that yes. I'll be, you know, oh, how's this? We always try and do the four categories of IMSA, your world of WECASM, ELMS, ACO, etc. We try and do some general questions, and we also try and do some in the fun category. We're not too far away from being one hour into the show. Okay. I would say we may well spend uh, the last half hour of it diving into this LMP2, uh, LMP2 cluster bleep. Um, so... Uh, all right, let's just dive right in here right. with this topic. Uh, let's see, whose do you want to start with? Do you want to go with our pal? Is he a pal or is this a new submissioneer? Uh, Lionel Gilsummer, I think is yeah. his name. It's, it's our, I think it's our resident stalker, Daniel. Daniel Summerskill. Um, do you want me to lay out what the issue is here? Yeah, so we the probably issue need is- to do that first. Right, so hypercar comes in this year. It's a step down the performance ladder from the LMP1 cars that it replaces in the FIWEC and was already made clear quite a while ago that as a result of that, you would need to see some dialing down of the performance levels of the LMP2s to give you a performance gap between the the two or this brand new word uh, for motorsport stratification is the word that's being applied, I gather, by the technical department of the ACO to describe that process. So uh, we saw the first iteration of that at the ELMS test at Portimao the day after the final race of the season last year, which involved at that point principally the – there were two – different methods of reducing engine power by about 30 kilowatts. Um, So the way in which it was decided to move forward was uh, some trickery from uh, the Gibson guys who produced the uh, lovely 4-litre normally aspirated V8 and a new exhaust system, which is not cheap, but a new exhaust system that effectively just strangles a little bit of the power out of those engines. Um, the second part of the package was uh, was des- designed to be a new generation of Goodyear tyres. Goodyear, the sole tyre supplies LMP2 for the LMS and for the FIWEC uh, from this season. And to give you an idea of what that broadly is, and I know as soon as they hear it, my phone will light up with messages from all my contacts and pals uh, at Goodyear. But to give you an idea of the step down in performance on the tyres that we're talking about, as it's been described to me by multiple people in the paddock, last year's hard Goodyear compound is this year's soft that's the step. So it's effectively leapfrogged to a whole 
new level of if you like worse tire performance that's what we're talking about here and you know we've seen this before in motorsport famously with pirelli in formula one where all the ills of the world were laid at their their uh, their door because they were being asked to produce tires to a specific performance level and again that's what's happening here this is not goodyear can't produce good tires it's goodyear are being asked to produce tires to a specific performance level the problem came that the tires just got to the stage where they were affecting the drivability of the car um the we i was hearing some not good things from testing uh just a couple of three weeks ago from a number of the teams took calls from a number of the drivers professional drivers as well as the uh, gentleman drivers and we were waiting for whatever hammer was going to drop that hammer dropped and dropped hard so now what we've got are three measures four measures sorry measure number one the 2021 goodyear rubber has been withdrawn we will go back to the choice of tyres we had in 2020. So tyre performance is the same as the Goodyear uh, cars ran in 2020. There's a further reduction in engine power, now 50 kilowatts down. Um, so something like 70 horsepower, 530 horsepower down from 600. So over 10% drop, 20 kilos up in the overall weight to 950 kilos from 930. And one of the most controversial parts of this is for the full WEC and for the ELMS after Barcelona, the, is that Rocky barking? No, it's, it's someone else's dog outside. They bring the dog outside in the little common area and uh, let them uh, handle their business. Right. Um, and the final thing is that's from uh, Red Bull Ring, round two of the LMS, and from round one of the WEC, uh, we will see all the LMP2 cars wearing the bodywork kit that previously was reserved for Le Mans only. That means lower drag, but it also means significantly lower downforce, and that's the area that is causing concern for teams and drivers on two or three fronts. Um one is it will make the car trickier uh, for those drivers that are able or like to exploit the high uh, downforce that these cars can generate. The second part is at this point in the season, and this decision was made less than two weeks before the official start of the season with those tests in uh, Barcelona, the teams are faced with effectively putting their previous bodywork in the skip. Um, and... Beyond that, we've got to the point where there's a number of those teams, and they particularly are the emerging teams, wouldn't have that bodywork at all because they weren't going to Le Mans. So teams like Ultimate and BHK Motorsport, Cool Racing for that matter. Beyond that, you've got the point where all of the teams, um, with I think I'm right one exception, have tested the entire proposed 2021 set up with the tires with the engine power um at least one of those teams has invested significantly in putting a car with that setup on a rig uh, at a very substantial cost uh, to get their engineering uh, data together and that has been wasted that money is gone um and you know one particular team told me they have spent 
a significant six-figure sum in preparing their cars to the designation they were told to expect for the 2021 season. And none of that data is now relevant in their new world. I will say this much. They're furious. They're all furious. Um, I can count five teams that have been in contact with me to tell me directly, had our drivers been told that this is what the package would be for LMP2 for 2021, they have told us, had they not already paid, they would not be paying. Um, I think the real impact we'll see when we get trackside and can speak to people face to face and can speak to the decision makers about this. The What I would say about this is it comes across as being clumsy. It comes across as being extremely late. Uh, it comes across as being particularly unfair to the European Le Mans series uh, teams who, let's face it, will only race against the hypercars once at Le Mans. Um, and I think what we've ended up with is from a successful class that LMP2 is, a really quite angry paddock. Um, I await the explanations we'll get when we get an opportunity for a higher quality of conversation, if you like, with the technical teams behind this from the ACO, from LMEM, and from Goodyear. But at the moment, this does not look good. And I think there's going to be a number of very angry conversations when we get to the stage where all those individuals I've just described are in the same kind of space uh, when we get across to Spain in just a couple of three days' time. Jeez. Well, of the uh, questions that remain, having set the stage wonderfully, which ones do you want to grab to fill in, uh, either fill in or, or answer some of the remaining questions? Uh, well, I think I, I think the, 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 there is a kind of um, uh, a commonality between them. The one, the one that stands out as being slightly different is from Jacob Babe, who's making the point that we're talking about cars that are at RDR10 pace here. One of the things that certainly has come back to me from a number of people is the P2 cars, that step for the 2017 cars, the, the uh, Gibson cars, was a very big step forward. The, I guess the problem is, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, they are very quick cars for gentlemen drivers, some of whom have, how can I put this, rather varied skill levels. Um, very quick cars indeed for them to be uh, getting into. Jacob's absolutely right, lapping them on at what was factory pace not that long ago. The problem is the step back feels to a lot of people to be false because it's not required for that class. It's required to introduce another class. And more to the point, it's profound, okay? Um, there's a million and one stories that could have been written over the last six months about the travails that have been going on in the background, most of which I've been fully aware of, to try to get this right. In my wildest dreams, I have to tell you, I didn't think we'd get to the point where we received the communication that we did, and it would be as blunt and as wide-ranging as it was. That, to my mind, is the doomsday scenario delivered right there. Um, and I, I just don't know what that's done to the relationship between the organizing uh, body, their customers in the teams, 
and Goodyear. I don't know because I've not had that chance to have those conversations face to face yet. And it's fair to say there's not a lot of people that particularly want to talk about at the moment. Um, when you do ask whether or not they do want to talk, the answer comes back fairly bluntly. So it's going to be a very interesting couple of days uh, for the preseason test in Barcelona. Um, clearly, they think it's necessary. Uh, my view is I think they could have afforded to have taken a step towards this without um, putting the hammer right down here. They've, uh, I hope what we've not got here is a spirit in that paddock that struggles to recover what for a lot of them has been a bit of a hammer blow the one final thing i'll say is here if there is one single thing that i will point the finger at the organizing body and say stop you're wrong here it's not the reduction in performance that that's in their want that's fine they need to stop this part of their script that says this is saving the team's money it's repeated repeatedly in just about everything we see about really in performance because it'll be this on breaks or blah 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 it's not saving the team's money it's costing them money and very specifically the way this has been done is going to cost them money you know you are not going to get orica giving any team the money back when they hand back the bodywork that they've already got prepped for this season they are going to have to buy more bodywork that many of them would not have had to buy and certainly would not have had to buy at this point. That's number one. The exhaust systems cost money. That's number two. The so-called savings, I believe, refer to things like you've got a less powerful car, therefore brake wear. Marshall, you're the guy who used to run race teams. Yeah. Tell me, would you be putting a part one brake system on a race car going into an endurance race? Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, that's not so great. You know, another thing I'll just throw in here on this topic, which so for the kind folks who purchased brand new LMP2 cars, decided we want to come play in 2021. Those yep. who've had LMP2 cars, been in the series, been committed. Showing up, putting money in the hands of the ACO, FIA, WEC, etc., the suppliers, whichever chassis constructors that they're aligned with, for those who have been doing this for a long time, short time, medium time, whatever it is, the most robust class that we have seen in the WEC for a little while now has been LMP2. Mainly 24 Hours of Le Mans being the giant turnout but if you filter down just a little bit uh, to ELMS, Asian Le Mans series, we can just say in, in a very general sense across the LMEM organization, um, we know that P2 is really the big subscription class. In the WC, the top level with this new hypercar formula, cool, great, we understand. It's not uncommon for significant rule change to hit once a decade, twice a decade maybe, but these things happen, they'll always happen, we get that. Where I take a little bit of umbrage here is just for the entrance and drivers in LMP2 who are being treated like a accessory to LMH. A, oh, well, we changed the top class. Therefore, because of the changes we've made and things not being exactly aligned 
the way that we want from a lap time standpoint differentiation, use that again here, we're going to significantly monkey and dick with LMP2 all because of the things that either didn't work out the way we expected or maybe we didn't think all these things through while doing this formula change from P1 to LMH. So I just, I know it's a general observation, not one that's overly specific, but things like this do frustrate me from afar. Having, as you mentioned, run racing teams, been a part of many teams. That LMP2 paddock, really, it's a hearty, hearty part of the WEC. And to have them being toyed with, jerked around, constant changes all to suit a change in a class that they have nothing to do with. They're not invested in. There's nothing to do with LMP2. And yet LMP2 is the one being dicked around with instead of making changes to LMH to get that class as a whole to where they feel it should be to create that separation and stratification and whatnot. That's the part that bugs me the most. Uh, that is an organizational failure. That is a leadership failure. That is a, from a senior management to technical management, uh, groups. This is just a wide ranging failure where you're treating the, uh, second tier prototype class like a plaything to manipulate all in service of the top tier class. Never going to sit right with me. Yeah, I think the, the the key to it. I think I I'm struggling to disagree with a single syllable of that, MP. The the problem. I, I will relay this from again multiple sources within the LMP2 paddock. That's drivers, team owners, significant personnel within those teams, which is they feel as if through what's been a difficult period for international motorsport, they provided the backbone to those grids. Remember, we've had grids of 20-plus LMP2 cars at Le Mans for many seasons now. And it's the same teams coming back. And not only that, the same teams coming back quite often with more cars and better drivers and bigger draws and great racing. And again, they do feel as if as soon as the magic OEM dollar, euro, pound whatever is waved in front of the organizers that all of that loyalty all of that um that significant continuity is forgotten and they are left to hang on in there while tsunami of regulation and the outset of those regulations um hits them full force and i'm struggling to disagree with that i i have thought for a long time here that we've got two parts of that LMP2 grid. The part that will be looking towards the potential for a LMDH or hypercar future and the part that can't and won't. You do not want to lose that part. You don't want to lose that um, developmental part of this industry, which can and will see teams emerging uh, into international prototype racing from you know, national and, uh, you know, from LMP3 into LMP2 into Continental Series, looking at WEC, looking at one-off races, looking at multiple Continental Series, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a proud tradition of that. You don't want to mess with that 
because that's the backbone of what that that's where you're going to get the next United Autosport from. It is where you got United Autosport from. Okay, that's where you're going to get the next Jota. It's going to get going to be where you get the next Yoast Racing. That's where they come from. They need a ladder that they can plan with and plan for. And by the way, that's the last part of this one is right now. These teams do not need additional complications in their lives. You know, it has been a frustrating week trying to plan to get to Spain just with me and two other guys in a car. I cannot begin to imagine what it's like for a team taking 20, 30, 40 more people across multiple national borders to go racing in Europe right now and being faced with the uh, the communication they got that gave the answers that they must comply with in days, let's not forget, days, having had no testing before this official testing next week uh, with that package. That, for me, I think there was genuine shock and genuine upset amongst a very significant proportion of the LMP2 paddock. And I think we'll be seeing, hearing and reading about that through the next few days in Spain. Where else should we go on this topic, my friend? Uh, I think let's move on from LMP2. I think a lot of these these, these things are, are pretty clear. We've got you know a, a, an intelligent user base uh, for the um, listener base for the weekend sports cars, and you know we've got an emerging story here, and we will be writing about it. Make no mistake about that. You know whatever my position in um, you know ACO rules racing as a commentator. It's too important a story not to ask those questions. And we'll ask those questions of, of all sides and bring you the answers as best we possibly can. Let's look at, um, can we get excited about virtual racing? That's an existential question. I know if, ah. if Ryan Kish, our man who puts together the questions each week and is a part of the uh, dailysportscar.com army, yes. I know if he was here, the answer would be a resounding yes. Scre- scream so loud it might kill fish. <laughs> that might be his excuse. Um, uh, well, this has come from an announcement this week, which I, it was absolutely zero surprise to me, uh, MP, that um, Motorsport Network, uh, Motorsport Games, their offshoot, their virtual racing uh, offshoot, have appointed none other than Gerard Naveau as their consultant to advise on future shape and links with, um, you know, OEMs and, and, uh, and championships. And hold on. Are uh, you saying the guy who's in charge of the WEC and took a lot of money off of this company in an odd manner to promote a motor racing media outlet while there are multiple motor racing media outlets covering the event in leaving LMEM has gone to work and is taking money from that outlet. Uh, this is a shock. I will not, I cannot process such a crazy concept, Graham. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to put it quite like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but we the, knew the this answer, was coming, but it, uh, like, well, again, for me at least it was coming. like, come on, man. But anyways, yeah, Hey, yeah. whatever. But but the, what the what our listeners are actually asking is does this change things? So Ryan Terpstra has asked a specific question about uh, i racing and their twenty four hour race, um, and uh, Rishi Deshpande asked about uh, the control the ACO control of virtual Le Mans events. Let's put aside 
um, it, the immediate Gerard Navonus of this. Uh, the reality is there is such a thing as copyright law um, and intellectual property. And the ACO are famously uh, jealous and guard as best they can the principles around the Le Mans 24 hours, as they would. It's a valuable property for them commercially. Do I defend the behavior of making it difficult for people to do things that are similar, the iRacing, etc.? I don't. But equally, in a similar manner that I know we've discussed on the show before when other matters have come forward and there's maybe been a bit of a heavy-handed interjection in it, I think the answer is this. You cannot just assume that you can do these things. You have to do those things by the process of negotiation. If, for instance... You know, I wanted to do something that had me uh, with lots of people driving around and 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 found a way of commercializing that. Let's say for the sake of arguing, I went to a local kart track and managed to get a huge number of people interested in doing a scaled down version of the Indy 500 and called it, I don't know, the uh, mini karting Indy 500 and got the BBC interested in um in broadcasting that or indeed a commercial channel selling advertising and called it that would i expect to be getting a call from the organizer of the indianapolis 500 that wasn't the nicest call i've received that week yeah i would uh, you know i'm not defending the way in which commercially these things have manifested themselves i am saying in this world where we're all very used to having direct access to everything and quite often free we maybe need a bit of a reality check in who owns what. Okay, that's it. It's not a defensive behavior. It's not a defensive language. It's not a defensive any of those things. But it is a reality check to say, be careful what you think you're entitled to. Okay, be careful what you think. You know, that you don't get anything really for free. The the realization that the planet is coming to as to why all those things you look on the internet at all those free games you down download to your smartphone why they're free and how that commercially works it is to do with there being financial transactions in the background to do with your data that's that's the commercial part of those transactions there is always going to be where money is being spent at any degree to produce something on a small or a large scale, there is always going to be a commercial transaction. If you are a party in any part of that that feels as if your intellectual property, your property uh, is being used for someone else to provide something on a commercial basis, of course you're going to have something to say about that. Okay, You may feel as if you're entitled to have this or that or the other, the reality is there may be an argument that you're not. Forget the heavy-handedness. Forget the language that's used. Forget the fact that it happens, you know, five minutes, five days, five months before a planned event. Think for a moment about the other side of that fence. And by the way, think as well at the moment about just what dire straits some of those organizations that hold that intellectual property are in right now. You want to talk about um, something like the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, I don't know how much cash they've got in the bank, but I can tell you right now, it's less than they had last year. 
and probably less than they had the year before that because of the situation they found themselves in. People are losing jobs in those organizations because of the situation we're finding ourselves in. And asking or assuming that you can take something that they believe legally belongs to them, the identity of that event, without paying the piper, I think would at the moment be remarkably immature of any commercial organization to do and not expect there to be a consequence. That is genuinely all I've got to say about it. Do I think this is a game changer in terms of Gerard moving to motorsport games? Not really. I don't think there's any surprises there and I don't think there's any surprises about what it is he'll be attempting to do for his new employers. He will be attempting to look forward to this grand new um you know, uh, picture in endurance racing that we know is emerging, as well as other things, of course, because it wasn't the only thing in motorsport he was involved with, uh, and putting those people in touch with those people that will be able to uh, negotiate licenses for events and cars and identities and teams, etc., etc. And do I think that will lead to a degree of exclusivity? Hell yes. Yes, I do. The, the, welcome to the real world. The the the, the, the the reality of putting virtual racing in a position where people want it to be, and I've read it repeatedly, want it to be a real-world equal competitor almost to um, the actual racing is that you're going to be dealing with the same forces. Virtual racing, in very many ways, when it was kind of off the radar of the people that run the big finance uh, real-world racing – was in a quite a comfortable space. All of a sudden, people have now realized that there's money to be made. Bad news for the people that wanted it back the way it was. Uh, there's, a, there's an element here, and I hate to be the guy, that guy, be careful what you wish for, because I think you're about to get it. You're such that guy. Uh, but the, the overarching thing here, which I hope makes sense to those who are grumpy that their familiarity and love for all things iRacing in the bit of the disconnect here is Graham and I would love to do our own 24 hours of Le Mans broadcast. We'd yep. love to just just sitting where we are right now, probably. And just, yeah, yeah. Hey, we're going to call the whole race and it's going to be terrible. Maybe better than Eurosport though. Uh, but we're going to be terrible, but we're just going to do it because we want to, and we like it. And, I would not look forward to the bills coming from lawyers for you and I having to deal with the repercussions of that. Or again, it's the reason why uh, folks don't just show up and start doing their own uh, video broadcast, maybe using their phone or otherwise for 24 hours. You might try and who knows, maybe some could get away with it for a little bit, but there's a reason why you can't just show up and do the thing with the big event that you like because the people that own it certainly expect to get paid for that. They've done a deal yep. uh, with motorsports games. That's who they're riding with. And so they're being paid for the opportunity or for the, uh, uh, for the possibility. And therefore would I racing possibly uh, be able to get in and do a second one if they paid for it. I, I doubt it, but I would say, I would approach this from the mindset of 
there was a desire to continue the virtual angle, virtual racing angle. I'm guessing it went up for bid. Who knows if it wasn't, who knows if it was uh, just a straight deal, but regardless, I'm guessing that there were options for those wanting to put it on, host it, present it, whatever it might be. A vendor not named iRacing has the deal. So this is kind of normal business, right? Not, uh, at least as I perceive it, some yep. out of left field behavior or action. I think the, the answer here is don't assume you have a right to do it. Don't assume you have a right to do it because it may very well be, particularly with those very well-known places, those very well-known events that someone is going to take an opposing view to that. And, you know, that's not me being a curmudgeon. That's not me being, you know, someone who's against what it is you want to do. That's being a realist. That is the real world. And, you know, I think we have lived in a world where people have made those assumptions. And to be blunt, I've got away with those things for quite a while until the point where someone has gone, well, hang on a minute. This has got commercial value to us. And does that feel a bit unfair? I'm sure it does. And Ryan points out there's, what, 20,000 iRacing members participated in the virtual uh, 24 hours of Le Mans. Fine. Okay. Uh, what contribution are they making to the 24 hours of Le Mans? That, that is a viable question, isn't it? It's a real-world question that if you're the commercial director of the ACO and LBM, you would be asking, that's great, but what does that do for us? That, that, that is just the real world. And it's not saying that what you want is a bad thing. It's not saying what you want is wrong. It's just pointing out that you want to look to somebody to ask the question. You're right to ask the ACO that question. You're equally right to ask iRacing that question. There we go. Uh, let's see. We're minutes away from being at an hour and a half, my friend. I wouldn't even call it a category change. I'd just say maybe it's a moving on to something slightly different to close. Uh, let's, let's find something a bit more lighthearted than that, shall we? Let's have a quick look at... Um, I like one from Right Turn Lover. Worthy causes in sports car racing, Graham. What are your yep. hashtag, me personally, most noteworthy ones? I guess uh, oh. uh, benevolence-themed, uh, charity-themed sports car racing programs what jumps out for um, you uh, it's not so much, there's so many of them i mean there have been so many of them uh it, it tends to be charity and causes tend to be very personal you and i have both had our very personal experiences with that along what's been a bumpy road over the last few years but a couple that spring to mind um one was uh, came back in, into my orbits with a picture that popped up on Facebook, I think, uh, which was Big Al, Big Al at Le Mans. Um, it was a cardboard cutout of Alan McNish uh, from one of his personal sponsors, Graham's Plumbers, oddly enough. Yes. Um, and we managed to get hold of a couple of these cardboard cutouts and did some, how can I put this? Questionable things with them through the Le Mans week, ran a series of, uh, of picture stories and culminated in taking Big Al to the driver's parade where we got every single driver to sign it and then gave that to Highcroft Racing's Malaria No More campaign, I think it was that year. And I think I'm right, it raised something like two and a half thousand dollars um, for the Malaria No More campaign. I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. 
for two reasons. It is always a nice thing to be able to do something for a good course. And it's absolutely fantastic to be able to spend an entire week taking the piss out of Alan McNish, um, which is, you know, they're, they're two things that are both close to my heart. The other one was, um, it's a motor racing buddy of mine, Dan Walmsley. Uh, so Dan, um, who uh, was the team manager at Stracker Racing before moving on for quite a period as the motorsport director at McLaren, uh, now moved on from that position. And he and his wife uh, had their first child, Esme. And Esme was not a very well young lady. And for quite uh, an extended period of time, it did look as if we were not, she was not going to make it. And there was a coming together of the WEC paddock. Esme became the WEC baby for a period of time. And in terms of the charitable um, efforts made on behalf of the the particular cause of the illness which she was suffering from, um, and indeed the efforts that everybody went to to reminding uh, Dan and his lovely lady um, that we were all thinking of them, that was a pretty awe-inspiring time when you got that moment to remember that you know those people that are knocking seven bells out of each other on track and sometimes having crosswords between garages – actually are all motorsport people and recognize that everybody else is a motorsport person and we've got the same pressures and we've got the same loves and we've got the same you know dislikes but for right now this is a bit more important that was a that was a nice time in what was a difficult time and i'm delighted to say by the way that esme is you know uh, alive and well and living a very happy life with a very loving mum and dad they're the two for me not not kind of any big box things, but just very personal recollections of people just being charitable and good. That's a positive thing. I'll throw in quickly. And it's just because I was reminded of it last weekend while searching through a lot of old press kits and stuff that I'm going to, uh, uh, release into the wild and put up for sale here shortly to uh, lighten the amount of, overwhelming stuff in my life was really impressed with Highcroft racing. I believe it was their 2010 Le Mans bid in LMP two where they were very vocal and very outward in their efforts to raise funds to purchase malaria nets to uh, support. I don't honestly recall if it was a specific uh african nation but uh their efforts to indeed it was the it was the malaria no more campaign yeah i don't think it was a specific uh i still got the t-shirt literally got the t-shirt so i thought that was pretty cool because it was outside the normal hey it's someone we know let's help them or you know there's a little bit of an insular level and i mean i'm raising my hand because just about everything I do uh, in this space involves someone or something in motor racing uh, or folks affected by something in motor race, folks in motor racing affected by something. This was no, this is nothing to do with motor racing uh, whatsoever. And I just thought it was a really cool and ambitious thing. Also, you tend to see things like this happen with teams where it's, more privateer 
independent level than anything. There are, of course, some select instances where a factory program has decided to do something to raise funds or raise awareness for a cause, but tends to be the, the wealthier individual who owns a team or maybe a wealthy gentleman or gentlewoman driver trying to raise funds for a cause uh, that we see these things happen. So not a surprise that the good man who is Duncan Dayton would fall into that category of uh, being able to do such things without any hoops or hurdles to leap through to get approvals from whatever factory his team, his cause, Brabs, obviously, David Brabham, a, uh, a central component in this uh, taking place. I just thought it was really cool. People who have the ability, doing something high profile, and decided to shine the uh, spotlight well, well far from uh, what we normally see with such things in motor racing. All right, I'm going to suggest for our final question of the episode, Graham, we move down to fun. Uh, this comes from Sam Piper, and uh, I... We can only assume this is one of the, the great put-ons uh, we've gotten. Um, regardless, Sam says, Hi, gentlemen. I'm a researcher at the TV channel Eurosport, and I'm compiling a list of facts for the on-air talent to deliver at this year's Le Mans 24-hour motor race, and I'm hoping you can help me. Uh, Sam asks, Does it get colder at night at the circuit in August like it does in September? No, no, it doesn't. It gets warmer at night in August, um, and that's great because what that helps is any of the cars with the superchargers, like indeed the uh, the Bentleys, the blower Bentleys yes. used to have, um, that helps them with uh, their breathing. So happily, the fact that spookily, the one uh, month of the year where it actually gets a lot warmer at night um, is August, so we're going to see some completely different uh, racing pictures uh, there, Sam. Should also say, I mean, all all sorts of other things are going to happen because uh, it's August. Uh, we're going to have, uh, for instance, there will be 62 cars uh, starting. Uh, I strongly suspect there will be fewer than 62 cars finishing. That that's going to be something to kind of look for. And uh, some of those cars will be going quicker than some of the other cars as well. So again. Key talking points, I think, that uh, we can expect to see on all broadcast packages, including the one that I'm going to be on, um, because I think I'm right. I've been picked up for this year, definitely been picked up for uh, the WEC, um, and looking forward to getting back uh, to work with uh, my returning commentary chums with that one. So we there's a early early morning sun, a separate sun, I believe, that rises over Circuit de la Second Sartre. sun. Yes. Yep. So that is, it's the most folks just don't even pay attention. They don't even really care. But yes, there is indeed a second sun that comes up while it's dark, just a warm. It's more like an incubator sun than a true big light yep. casting sun. So w- please include that in the Eurosport Le Mans broadcast. Are we yeah, done? Look, look out for that. Look out for that. I think we are for the moment. I'm going to cherry pick a few of the questions we got this week to chuck into next week. Remember, next week, uh, whichever day we're doing it, we'll be doing it with me on site in uh, Barcelona, in Catalonia. Uh, we will have seen cars on track for the test ahead of the start of the LMS season. There will be, I'm sure, lots of talking points to come from there. For now, thank you so much indeed for the 
repeated high volume and high quality of questions that continue to come both from our regular listening audience and of course of what seems to be week by week new additions to that growing army that we'll be using at some point for nefarious purposes for now with thanks of course to cooper tires and of course to the justice brothers and to torontomotorsports.com i've been graham goodwin he's been marshall pruitt we will be talking to you next week uh, on the weekend sports cars but for now good night